Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. We would love to hear your stories and questions about how Street Data Pod is shifting the way you move as an educator. If you have a comment or a question, you can leave us a voicemail at the new Street Data Pod phone number, 415-335-9997. You can also send us an email to streetdatapod at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear street data from you all, and we might even feature your voicemail on a future episode. Today, pod community, we are so delighted to have on two illustrious educational leaders, Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond and Dr. Kia Darling-Hammond. They are an extraordinary mother-daughter duo who has recently published a book about the civil rights path to deeper learning. And today we'll be digging in to connections between deeper learning, civil rights, our shared histories as a group of four folks in the field, and street data. Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond is the Charles E. Ducomen Professor of Education Emeritus at Stanford University and President of the Learning Policy Institute. She is past president of the American Educational Research Association and an author of more than 30 books and 600 other publications on educational quality and equity. Linda led the Obama Education Policy Transition Team in 2008 and the Biden Education Transition Team in 2020. She was appointed president of the California State Board of Education in 2019. We are beyond grateful to have Linda, Dr. Darling-Hammond with us today. Dr. Kia Darling-Hammond is author of The Bridge to Thriving Framework, The Civil Rights Road to Deeper Learning, Five Essentials for Equity, and the CEO of Wise Chipmunk LLC, an education and research firm. She uses a justice, healing, and human development approach to help people anchor their work with their values. Her efforts have resulted in such dynamic outcomes as large international and national firms articulating organizational thriving strategies, students designing educational experiences with their thriving in mind, and the Congressional Black Caucus leveraging her and other contributors' work to advance the Pursuing Equity and Mental Health Act. Welcome, Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond and Dr. Kia Darling-Hammond. All right, so we are here to discuss your incredible and comprehensive new book, The Civil Rights Road to Deeper Learning, Five Essentials for Equity, and also to surface some of the intersections between your book and the book that I co-authored with Dr. Jamila Dugan, which came out in 2021, Street Data. Linda, we're going to start with a story question for you. Can you tell us a little bit about your early years as an educator and how those shaped and continue to shape your philosophy on educational equity? Well, I came into teaching and high school English teaching in the early 1970s when there was a teacher shortage, like there is again today. And I taught in warehouse factory model high schools. Mm. And my first experience was at in Camden High School, my student teaching, which was in New Jersey at a time when the schools were very inequitably funded. And mm. the schools in the predominantly black cities of Camden and Patterson and Newark, and you could go through the state, were receiving about half 
half as much money as the schools in Princeton and New Brunswick and other communities like that. There were no books in the book room when I went to try to figure out what to teach in my little English class. The resources were very, very minimal. So I became immediately aware of the inequalities in funding. I later ended up going back to graduate school to figure out these policy problems that I had encountered as a teacher and did my dissertation on school finance reform at the time that New Jersey was trying to correct these problems, which took 30 years, nine lawsuits and court decisions before they finally did the right thing to equalize funding. While I was in these teaching positions in the early years, I also realized that I was underprepared for teaching (laughs) and I was teaching in classes where some high school students did not yet know how to read, where I had, you know, students who were English learners who I was underprepared to work with because, you know, I was kind of going on the, you know, what I had seen before, but not a high quality preparation. And you Mm. mentioned, Shane, the work that was done at the Stanford Teacher Education Program. I always wanted to figure out out what is it that we need to do to give teachers the knowledge skills that they want to have to succeed with their students and how do we get that to all teachers and then the third thing I noticed in that setting which relates to both of your experiences is that you could not care effectively for 180 students that you saw in six periods a day and 30 at a time in the large factory model high school context where I wanted to be effective with all my students. I wanted to be able to Mm -hmm. support them, but it was not designed to allow me to have a team of teachers who would work with a group of students to have, you know, personalized settings in which I could really support them. And that also then led me to be involved in the school redesign process that you experienced (laughs) at Fannie Lou Hamer in New York and that you experienced Shane in June Jordan School for Equity in San Francisco, where you know, you were part of designing schools that were personalized, supportive, and teaching teams and authentic work for students and authentic assessments that made high school worth coming to. So all of those for me are part of educational equity, that we need places that are focused on meaningful learning, that are supportive of young people and their development, in which teachers are enabled to care effectively for them, that are adequately resourced, and where um, educators also have the opportunity to learn. Thank you so much for that memory walk. Um, It creates a lot of nostalgia for me to those years, kind of pre No Child Left Behind. We'll get to that in a couple questions, but really appreciate the one inch window into your early teaching experiences. And I can see and feel and hear how much that does weave into this macro level systems work you do now. So thank you for sharing. And it also reminds me of Norm Fruchter, who, as you know, recently passed away. I worked with Norm at the Institute for Education and Social Policy and was part of the Annenberg. I was a data analyst for the Annenberg School. And so I just think about him as we think about the financing of schools and how critical he was to the fight in New York for that equity endeavor. Dr. Kia, this question is for you. Can you tell us what motivated you all to write this book and why it feels like a timely offering as the pandemic and the testing error starts to recede, hopefully, fingers crossed, into the background? 
I can. And just before I do really quickly, so I also, because of my experience in education as a teacher and then as an administrator, went back to school, went to graduate school to learn about how I could intervene in a different way and what young people were experiencing. And so it was actually very cool, mom, to hear you tell that story and go, oh my gosh, me too. <laughs> we have a lot of those things, little things in common, actually. And I went in a different direction. I decided to study thriving and, you know, study psychology. And so to the book, this book began as a report. And it was commissioned as we were looking at funding and support for the CRDC, the Civil Rights Data Collection, and watching that being gutted and sort of worrying about what was going to happen at the intersection of civil rights and education. Mm. And so I was approached to research to really build that bridge between the mm. impact of civil rights action and activism and enforcement on schooling and education, but specifically on really beautiful, vibrant educational outcomes. So deeper learning, yes. right? The opportunity to really, yes. you know, have a meaningful experience in school. And so I began writing that report. We sort of had, you know, the preliminary manuscript. And then we were like, well, where are we going <laughs> to, how are we going to get this report out there? And the idea came up that I could approach my mother, right? And talk about potentially partnering with Learning Policy Institute. So we talked about it and she read the report and she was like, oh, can I add a few things here or there? <laughs> of course, I was already <laughs> citing her course, quite mom. a bit. <laughs> and so we ended up sort of getting into this co-writing project and this report turned into really something much bigger. It became this kind of book. And mom, do you want to talk about the Teachers College Press piece of this story? Well, I, I think at some point somebody approached me who I'd worked with as an editor and said, what are you working on? And I sent this <laughs> off with a few other things and she said, oh, that's the one we want to publish. So it you know, became a book. Really, uh, it, it forced us to A, finish it and get it out <laughs> to them, but also yes. Yes. <laughs> allowed them to get an audience for this that, you know, goes beyond what the Learning Policy Institute would normally access. It's really mm -hmm. exciting because it's sort of the beginning of a larger campaign to really raise awareness and to you yes. know, engage people in hopefully some action towards promoting civil rights and enforcing civil rights and, you know, thinking really concretely about what young people deserve in schools. So, you know, it's this funny thing about the bringing it into relationship with the pandemic and testing, mm -hmm. because of course the pandemic is not over. It right. is in the public imagination appearing to recede into the background, but in reality, hundreds of people are still dying every day. And we don't know what the long-term impact of this pandemic will be on our society or on our bodies, not yet. And so it right. is an interesting thing to think about what rights people have, rights to access mm. to public space, rights to access Ooh. to health and well-being, rights to access to opportunities to learn equitably in relationship to what has become a disproportionately debilitating, you know, because of our society, it shows up in the ways that this does, experience yeah. yep. of health inequity, which is also economic inequity, which is also learning access inequity. And so I think it is timely for us to remember that there is a connection between rights and opportunity, rights mm. and education, oh. rights and what's possible. Beautiful. And we're in a moment of needing to really be robust in our imagining about a future. What is the future that we want to fight for? Because we have to fight for it. And the civil rights story, that history, that narrative is a reminder that we're in struggle and that it's good trouble that we're trying to make. So I think that's part of what makes Oof. this timely. Oof. So 
we want to talk about Williams for a minute. So on pages 32 to 33, you discuss the Williams lawsuit as an example of a civil rights strategy to address inequitable access to educational opportunity. And I think Linda knows that I was a young teacher at Balboa High School at the time, just a few blocks from June Jordan School for Equity and Luther Burbank. And I was actually deposed for Mm -hmm. that lawsuit in a very intense (laughs) and rather intimidating deposition, I might say, that took about two full Mm. days. (laughs) <laughs> and talked about things like rats running around my classroom, or I guess I should say mice, not rats, so much better, and ceiling tiles falling out of the ceilings that cross Balboa and bathrooms that were locked. All those things were the fabric of my reality as a young teacher. So looking back, wondering if you could comment on what Williams got right, how it did move the needle, but also what you see as the next historic wave in the fight for civil rights and equitable access. Well, Williams uh, was brought, and I was also an expert witness in that lawsuit back in about 1998, I think. And California had been disinvesting in public education since the late 1970s, since Proposition 13. And as the schools became more and more populated by students of color, the state spent less and less and less on education. Mm -hmm. And they were leveling down to a point that by 2010, we were almost there at the Williams point. We were like the lowest spending state if you adjusted for cost of living. We were 47 48th or 49th on every achievement indicator. We had the largest class sizes in the country, you know, the smallest number of professional teachers and leaders, etc. No counselors, so many schools with no music, art, library, program, you know, no counselors. It was really almost a third world context. So yeah, yeah. we were en route to that when the Williams lawsuit was brought. I was documenting the thousands and thousands of people coming into teaching without training and teaching mostly in the high need schools that served low-income students, etc. The Williams lawsuit at least raised the issue and got it on people's agendas. It was settled with too little investment from the state, and they mostly focused on, you know, having reasonable facilities that weren't falling down completely and making sure everybody had a textbook. Uh, not nearly enough attention to all of the other issues. It wasn't until 2010 when uh, Governor Brown came in that we got the local control funding formula going. We got a much more progressive funding structure. And then in 2018 and following when Governor Newsom was elected, we began to really put resources into the schools. So I think that that is the next horizon of civil rights. We, in the last three years, under Governor Newsom, while I've been able, privileged to be the president of the state board, we've added $50 billion to the $70 billion that were being spent. Nice the schools. That has gone into an even more progressive formula, which means more of the money is going to the students who have the greatest needs. We have invested in community schools, which provide wraparound services and supports. We've invested in before and after school care, mental health, and these are billions and billions of dollars going to really create a context within which students have many of the things they need to have to learn effectively. There is still more to do, and we're leaning in now on how to create meaningful curriculum, more opportunities for schools that make students college and career ready in experiential and meaningful ways. TK and Universal Preschool are on the agenda now. And at the end of it, what we really need is a setting in which students go to schools that are focused on meaningful learning, staffed by educators who have been well-prepared and well-supported, resourced in ways that ensure that they get not only the instructional supports that they 
need, but also the whole child supports, that they need to be thriving people in a society that sees that investment as essential for everyone. Because when they complete that educational experience, they'll be able to contribute to society, the talents that they have developed and ensure that the social compact stays alive between generations and among citizens. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you for oh. that answer, but more thank you for the work Yay. you're leading <laughs> and the model that you provide of just always pushing the conversation forward, pushing the system to live up to its values and aspirations. And I'll just briefly say that I have the privilege of living in British Columbia this year and a half with my older kid. And I'm sure you're familiar with the BC competency-based curriculum, which has just been really interesting to learn about. And we, Alcine and I, and a couple other folks are gearing up for a sort of educational thought leader retreat on Vancouver Island in the fall. So stay tuned. I know you all are very busy, but we will certainly invite you if you're able to join us. All right. So this question goes to you, Kia. In the book, on page 74, you write, in recent years, the test-based accountability system introduced by No Child Left Behind reinforced both tracking and its focus on low-level skills for those in the bottom tracks. Given that in some school districts and schools, at least half of the teachers are new to teaching and may have only been teaching under No Child Left Behind, can you unpack for our audience how No Child Left Behind and the intense emphasis on testing has served as a barrier to deeper learning. I'll begin unpacking that. I think one critical thing is, of course, it put people into kind of a survival mode, right? You had, you were going to be punished if you didn't achieve these performance outcomes. And that could mean, you know, losing your job, losing your school, you know, children were being told they were in deficit in all of these ways. Here's how you fell short. Here's how you failed. None of these things are conducive to human beings flourishing in any way. So in order to keep the school alive, in order to keep the jobs intact, in order to keep the children resourced, right? Not have, you know, finances taken away. People said, oh, I guess the thing we have to do now is make sure that we perform well on these tests. And of course, these tests are not good measures of knowledge or capability. They're good measures of performance, exposure of things that you can't actually, you know, control for. <laughs> Measure in a test. Yes, yes. That actually does bring us to sort of the learning versus the performance mindset. Thank you. <laughs> yes. I think that's an important thing for people to understand. And I think this relates to the second half of the question as well. Mistakes are how we learn, right? Experimentation is how we learn. And play is how we learn, right? Play is where we get to be innovative and creative and experimental and all of those things. And so testing isn't learning conducive, and especially not the way NCLB did it. So, you you know, when you construct your curriculum and you construct your assessment, you're constructing it either for a learning mindset or a performance mindset. And a performance mindset makes people risk averse. Mm. It makes them mistake averse, which means that they're being learning averse, right? And that is the fundamental problem. So, I mean, I feel like that's a good, you know, sort of summative unpacking of some of what got in the way. But, you know, 
there's also this dimension that is about like when you're in scarcity, when you're in urgency, when you're in survival mode, it's difficult to imagine things like lesson studies between teachers, right? Or interdisciplinary curriculum development or project-based learning and, you know, performance-based assessment. I can see my mom. So, you know, my mom, she's sitting there like, I got stuff to say about this. So I'm going to kick it to her in a second because she knows about this. (laughs) (laughs) This is her thing. I think we also found a co-host. Go ahead, Kia. Yes. So, you know, deeper learning, it's not actually about, you know, what do kids know, you know, in the sense of what we assess on tests. Mm -hmm. It's about vibrancy, innovation, experimentation, you know, joy. Really, it is about learning, but it's about learning in the most delicious sense, right? Not in the performance sense. And so testing is inherently kind of the way that we imagine it, the way that we think about it, the way that we approach it, it's just in the way of us imagining better. Anyway, I do, I want to kick it to my mom. <laughs> uh, well, one of the things that happened in No Child Left Behind was that requiring these tests that had to be given every year and then people had to show higher scores every single year in order not to get punished. The tests also deteriorated in their quality. So there was a study done that showed <laughs> so, that... Uh, In the 17 states with the so-called highest standards, 98% of the items on math tests were low level, Mm. wrote memorization, uh, and about 80% of the items on English language arts tests. So, you know, this idea that you're going to be memorizing things to spit back, which is the old transmission curriculum, not relevant to 21st century skills and the ways you learn knowledge to transfer them to new situations. And then the fact that in addition to that, you're not learning in a way that is powerful for other uses of the knowledge. Just picking one answer out of five doesn't prepare you for life or in and where's the job that you walk into where they give you a multiple choice test on your desk and you pick one answer out of five, you know, A, C, D, E, and you go home. If you show up at a place like Google where they're, you know, they basically said that yeah. all the information on your transcripts, the grades and test scores and so on did not predict success at Google. What success, what predicted success was learning ability, your ability to solve a problem, work with a team, mm-hmm. those kind of skills that, that require learning ability. If you show up at a place like that and just say, well, what are my choices of answers to the problem? They're going to kick you out, right? So it's not only dampening learning in the ways that Kia described, it's also preventing people from getting the skills they need to be successful in this society. both for that one, two, you know, connected set of answers, so elegant and nuanced, and I think really will help listeners to make meaning of what was missing, what has been missing. And I love the learning in the most delicious sense, right? It's actually, there's really not a better way to describe what I think we're all (laughs) aspiring to, the experience, the felt experience of young people. So Linda, you've long been a champion of performance-based assessment. Chapter six of Street Data really positions both graduate profile development and performance assessment as vehicles for coherence and equity in school systems. As you know, both Alcine and I come from schools that are steeped in these traditions. I also taught at Life Academy before June Jordan School for Equity, and we've witnessed the impact 
of performance assessment on all students, but particularly on mm-hmm. students who've been historically mm-hmm. marginalized, right? The level of agency and empowerment that those experiences provide. We're also noticing, and I'm so curious what you both think about this, a bit of a generational divide in terms of teacher understanding of how performance assessment is connected to mm-hmm. equity and connected mm-hmm. to anti-racism mm-hmm. efforts. Mm-hmm. And that's something we've been grappling with. So Linda, maybe you can start and Kia can add to just helping listeners with a primer on what is performance assessment, but also why it should be viewed as a strategy for equity and anti-racism and deeper learning. It's a great question. I mean, performance assessment is when you're actually doing the (laughs) thing that you're learning about and demonstrating what you've learned and what you can do with that knowledge. And so that may take the form of an inquiry or research project where you are learning about something, typically something that you care about, that is something that is motivated by a sense of curiosity and inquiry, where you figure out how to, and it may be a collaborative activity that involves you in that kind of learning and where you're then demonstrating what you've learned in ways that are very authentic, that, you know, you can talk about it, you can write about it, you can develop an artifact or a product around that learning that you've done and communicate it with others and that you understand it deeply enough that you can answer questions that, you know, uh, others have about it and be a teacher in that space, so to speak. And so that's usually part of the performance assessment. We all have had the experience of portfolio strategies for performance assessment where students are demonstrating what they know by taking up particular kinds of projects, then, you know, describing what they've learned, writing about it, demonstrating that they've met certain criteria, the use of rubrics in that setting, which say this is what a quality piece of work includes, becomes an educative tool in itself. The process of revision of the work toward those standards is a way of uh, learning how to learn in the future, as well as learning in that moment and going deep, getting that deep understanding of something. Having a sense of expertise and mastery is also very generative of motivation and ongoing commitment to the struggle of doing hard forms of learning, you know, going deep. So there's many, many aspects of this that enable young people to become scholars, to become scientists and mathematicians and writers and, you know, the various disciplines come alive because they then can develop an identity in those spaces. It also produces curriculum equity. You know, the, Ooh, the notion that uh-huh. the end of the year test is going to see whether you, you know, remember it or not, and did you forget it? And those tests, by the way, are also constructed so that the items produce an artificial bell curve. Quite yes. Often. yes. Uh, the the yes. thing they're looking for is whether the items have quote unquote discriminatory mm-hmm. power, which is a yes. double entendre <laughs> because they are both intended. If too wow. many kids know the answer to something, they throw that item out because it does not produce the bell curve. And if the wrong set of kids, those who don't normally score highly, know the answer, they also throw it out. So there's lots of ways in which tests are constructed to preserve the status quo and privilege that we have. But also, uh, the kids who are lucky enough to get a rich curriculum en route to the test will know more at that point. And those who did not get the opportunity for that science investigation or for the kind of mathematical modeling uh, that would have allowed them to learn deeply will do less well. Whereas with performance assessment, the whole point is that you are learning as you are engaging in the assessment, that everyone has that rich learning opportunity. And then you also have the learning opportunity of revision toward mastery, which means that you see much
much greater equity in the outcomes of teaching because of that possibility. So these things that many people would think of as cheating are actually essential to learning. Right. Oh, you just gave a masterclass in that three-minute answer. Love it. We love it. And we're going to go back to Yuki, and I'm going to kind of mush because I really wanted to hear your answer to this question around performance assessment a little bit. So in street data, Shane and, and Jamila define it as qualitative data that we can systematically gather in service of equity and deeper learning. So I want you to think about these two questions, answer however you want, right? Like how might a systematic focus on street level data help us heal from the testing error? Or how have you seen schools and systems utilize data from performance-based assessments to increase equitable access to deeper learning and other, you know, access general for kiddos. I think one thing that we have to remember is that we are social creatures, that all learning is socially mediated, that our development is profoundly socially, you know, reinforced. We are because we are. I am because you are. You are because I am. Ubuntu. We are mutually constituting creatures. And focusing on qualitative information and stories, that's, you know, people's stories and lived experiences does, or it has the potential to do is affirm someone's whole personhood. And when you affirm a person as a Mm. whole being, Mm. especially a child who is disenfranchised, you know, uh, an oppressed community, this is, you know, ageism is real, adultism is real. You create the conditions that allow them to show you who they are. And when they can show you who they are, Mm. then you are going to create an opportunity for them to learn. Then you really get to be in the point, which is the learning, not the performance, not the status, not the sorting, but the learning, the human self-actualization and the human self-determination. We are very focused on freedom that's what that is right so we're talking about civil rights as a conduit to liberation because we're whole human people because we have these precious lives because we have inherent divinity trying to create the conditions that allow us to see each person and bring out the best in them so that they can become you're gonna make me cry I just got chills on that really really (laughs) beautiful so this is our lightning round what is a practice or a way of being that keeps you grounded in the struggle for educational justice I would say appreciation for stamina if you look over the history mm. of civil rights mm. work and, you know, human rights work, you know, nothing gets done quickly. You make two steps yeah. forward, you get one step back. You have to be prepared to be resilient and have stamina. And I would say appreciation for the liberation praxis that is inherent in small people playing. Ooh, love it. All right. What is one form of street data every educator should gather? What makes young people joyful? Love it. Love it. Linda? Evidence of what students can do and what makes Ooh. them engaged and passionate. Oh, yes! evidence of yes! what they can do. Love so it. So good. All right. Last question. What's one essential feature of your vision of a classroom? That there is evident caring between and among people. Mm, great. Mm. That it's driven by what young people know works for them. Oh, y'all. I'm, I'm teared up, as you can see. Because the vision you just gave of what schools should be, and we know they can be for young people, it is a vision that every one of us deserves. 
And I just can't imagine if we had access to that education, who we would be as a society. So thank you for casting that vision. And I hope that this newer generation of educators and young people catch hold of that vision and work with stamina and resilience to make that a reality (laughs) in my lifetime, hopefully. I just want to say thank you to both of you. I'm filled with so much gratitude for your time. We know how incredibly busy you are. Thanks thanks to the governor for (laughs) deferring the meeting or whatever. And allowing you to be with us. Just endless respect and affection for the work you do and lead. And can't wait to reconnect and share this with you and continue to be in conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, love. (laughs) Thank you. Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Maya Cueva, and our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring us. And a special shout out to Rocky Rivera, my former student, for our theme music. If you want to learn more about Street Data and get your hands on a copy of the book, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. Street Data Pod friends, we have two announcements to share. First, you can get 20% off Street Data on Corwin Press's website if you use discount code STREETDATA, all caps. Second, we would love to hear your stories and questions about how Street Data Pod is shifting the way you move as an educator. So check it out. If you have a comment or a question about any episode, you can leave us a voicemail at the new Street Data Pod phone number, 415-335-9997. That's also on our website. You can also send us an email to streetdatapod at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear street data from you all, and we might even feature your voicemail on a future episode. It was actually very cool, mom, to hear you tell that story. But I, I love that you called her mom. We're a family <laughs> podcast, just bringing <laughs> parents and children closer together. <laughs>